0: From Share Cancer Support, this is Our MBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico. Welcome. So glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Our NBC Life podcast is for the NBC community, developed by people living with NBC in an effort to lift up marginalized voices, share stories, and experiences. Today, as we are at the beginning of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we bring you two incredible advocates, Katherine O'Brien and Ricky Fairley, in two separate podcasts released on the same day. It's another double episode release at the beginning of a month, that can be tough for those of us living with NBC. And that seemed about right. For our interview with Ricky Fairley, we explore how Ricky's groundbreaking organization, Touch Black Breast Cancer Alliance, is working to eradicate black breast cancer and how this organization had to be different to make an impact. So please do check that one out. On this episode, we start with my interview with Catherine O'Brien, a leading force in NBC advocacy since 2009. Catherine was diagnosed with MBC in 2009 at the age of 43, and she quickly recognized that there were very few media accounts featuring people living with the stage 4 diagnosis. She met Joni Gudeman and Shirley Mertz at a Chicago seminar for people living with MBC, and that inspired her to attend the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network's annual conference in 2010. She's a full-time writer, and so she decided to change this lack of media coverage of NBC using the power of her pen. Catherine quickly influenced the conversation around stage four breast cancer, and she joined the board of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network in 2013 as secretary and public relations chair, focusing on increasing the social media presence of the MBCN. In addition, up until this past May, Catherine was the co-chair of the Awareness Task Force for the MBCA developing the new Here All Year initiative that the MBCA is launching this month. Each month, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance's Here All Year campaign explores a new topic around metastatic breast cancer, from myth and stigma busters to new research and strategies for improving outcomes. Dig deeper into the research, explore the available resources, and share them on your social media and email channels. You can find the Here All Year campaign and access to the social media infographics at www.nbcalliance.org. Of course, links to all of this will be found in our episode notes found on our website, www.rnbclife.org. Welcome to RMBC Life, Catherine. We're so glad you're here. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. So it's it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and you've been such a leader in our community for over 10 years now. And for those of us who are less familiar with your background, what was your life like before NBC? Well, prior to
1: my cancer diagnosis, uh, I was a technical editor. I edited uh, trade magazines for printers, and... The magazine I worked on had the imaginative title of American Printer. And uh, I did that, that was pretty much, that was the, probably the longest term job that I had, but I've always did some kind of editing or writing. That was my background.
0: So when you were diagnosed with MBC, how was the initial process for di- of diagnosis for you? And was there any family history? Was it a, was it a surprise? That sort of thing.
1: Okay. Well, this was uh, 2009. And economically, this was not a great time. And it seemed likely that my job was going to end. So I got caught up on some overdue medical appointments. I thought, you know, while I was still employed and had good insurance, you know, I better see how my health was although certainly I felt fine I mean it was just trying to be proactive and um, so I went for a physical and all was fine and then during the gynecological portion of this, the nurse practitioner was doing a breast exam and she felt the lump on my left breast. And she gave me a prescription for a diagnostic mammogram. You know, I didn't really, it didn't seem like an emergency. And in fact, I didn't do anything <laughs> for a few weeks on that. A family member knew that I was avoiding this and he kept bugging me. And so hence I went for the diagnostic mammogram. And I made no distinction in my head that I was being sent for a diagnostic, meaning, you know, there might be something wrong with you, they're suspected, something has been found, versus a a routine screening mammogram, which most people would be familiar with. So I went in, and they were doing the mammogram, and the radiologist kept requesting more views, and, and, you know, the mind has a great capacity for just kidding yourself. And so I kept thinking like, well, I know that, you know, you know, I'm younger, you know, I'm small-breasted. They probably just are having trouble, you know, for those reasons. And, you know, so then things escalated. I was sent across the hall for an ultrasound and same thing. I was still, oh, well, whatever. And, the ultrasound technician was clicky clicking away and i almost said like no are you, are you playing electronic battleship over there you know i didn't say anything what she was doing in fact was circling all the cancer on my breast and that wasn't good so anyhow ultimately the radiologist himself to me it's like the wizard of oz like if you were going to have a good mammogram you don't see the radiologist he stays in his little room and you do not see him the radiologist comes in with an entourage, because they had like a patient navigator, this is not good. And you know, it was like the bad version of the publishers' clearinghouse sweepstakes. Like this, you know, like oh, three people—it's <laughs> gonna take three people to tell me I have cancer. I can joke after twelve years, but that's not where I was at the time. I was literally—I could not move. I was, you know, I was lying back on this exam table and I was paralyzed. You know, in terms of shock, fear, whatever. The Radiologist told me I had, you know, best see a breast surgeon. And I just said, "Um, well, I'm going out of town. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, things moved along. I ultimately saw a, a breast surgeon, and she felt I probably had stage three breast cancer. So I was preparing for a mastectomy. And in the process of preparing for the mastectomy, I was sent for. Um, the usual workup, which included a bone scan. And on the bone scan, they could see a small volume of metastasis. And so now, no mastectomy, on to see an oncologist. As I look back on it, you know, yes, it was extremely, I, I still think of really everything that has happened to me as a cancer patient, those first few weeks were the worst, because I mean, you don't know anything. You you know, I even, you know, you asked about family history. My mom died from cancer, from breast cancer. Um, She had inflammatory metastatic breast cancer. And she died in 1983, um, just after I graduated from high school. She was 55 years old, and she died when I was 17. And this is a pretty you know, traumatic event for a family. You know, I knew what my mom's experience was, and I thought that's what I was, you know, it was very painful. She had no treatment that was ever effective. I did not take into account that what I knew was in the 1980s, and this at the time was 2009. It was very different, and I don't have inflammatory breast cancer. Although cancer, you know, if you're at a younger age and you have that family history, it could be hereditary, but in my case, I've done extensive testing and have not found that to be the case. It's considered sporadic.
0: Right. So you're de novo MBC diagnosed with few bone mets in 2009. It's interesting at the point you raise about family history. You you were struck by lightning in those terms twice in your family, your mother and then you, but with different types of breast cancer. What is your current line of treatment now?
1: This is my seventh treatment. I'm currently on
0: Braxane, which I get three times a month and then I get a week off. And how many? so this is your seventh line of treatment. And right. was there a line of treatment? Like what was the lo- longest line of treatment that you were on? That's
1: that's a good question. I want to say it was Zalota, actually. I want to say oh, that it okay. was uh, three and a half years because I was on Tamoxifen for two and a half years, Femara for two and a half years, and then probably hit a patch of resistance because Faslodex and then you know failed after three months. Right. Afinitor failed after three months, and that brings us to Zalota. And then Zalota was three and a half years.
0: That's a good run, right? As we say. It's a decent run. Right. It's a decent Absolutely. run. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're a writer and an editor. Um, When you're a writer and editor, it's sort of that's something that never, never goes away. You're always a writer and an editor. Mm -hmm. What drew you to NBC advocacy in those early years? I think the first thing was that it was a coping
1: strategy because
0: I remember
1: the first appointments with the surgeon and the oncologist, and I felt so frustrated, not with them, but with myself because I didn't know what they were talking about. And having come from, I have to say that I interviewed many, many people in the printing industry, knowing apps, I mean, enough to get by, but I I like to be, i like to have some basis of knowledge to, to work with. So the first thing I think was to help myself. And then the second thing... That was instrumental was I think in 2010 uh, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network was having a conference at Indiana University. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go to this conference. And you know, I was still working full time. I I remember <laughs> like I was debating this because I'm like, oh, maybe it'll be a bunch of old people. And I'm like, you know, that, that's only this is my time off. And do I want to really spend a weekend with a bunch of old people I think there's a certain pity party that I still had at that time of you know oh I'm so young and you know so it was very very helpful to go to this conference because number one there was people far younger than me so people that were you know clearly had some challenges with their disease and I really I had nothing you know, compared to that. So, you know, it was, that was a kind of a wake up call to me that, you know, maybe I should just get over myself, you know. But the other thing was they would have, the patients would get up and introduce the speakers. And they were, they just did such a great job that in some cases I honestly didn't know if it was a patient. I thought they might work for it. I thought, well, maybe they're like some kind of professional here at Indiana. That was part of it. But I do remember, again, this is in 2000, you know, I was diagnosed in 2009. And information is not where it is today. You know, today we have, which NBCN was part of helping make happen, you know, make October 13th uh, National Metastatic Breast Cancer Awareness Day. I believe that started in 2009 and there was when I say there was nothing there was nothing Facebook is in its infancy or really no Twitter really wasn't there breastcancer.org was there that was a place that I turned to right away but it was hard to connect with people and so if you wanted to learn something you you were going to have to find that information yourself and so I maybe was somewhat qualified to do that because that was a lot of what I did in my job so there was that I think it was the two things one I just wanted to, I did want to help myself, but given the almost complete lack of information or resources, you know, we had no place to go but up. I wanted
0: to help. Well, we're all certainly glad that you did. You mentioned Breast Cancer Awareness Day on October 13th, that Shirley Mertz and Susan Davis, who created the committee right. to go to Congress and, and lobby for that right. to become a day, What are your thoughts on this day to, you know, now in 2020 and how it's honored and what does it mean? Well, I think it is important to patients because it gives patients a rallying point.
1: I think that, I think that it's also challenging though, because I think, I mean, October is a really hard month for somebody with metastatic breast cancer. I remember a group of friends that I was with on a board said, you know, you know what we should do? We should just We'll rent a private island. We'll hire a doctor and a nurse. We will stay on the island until October ends. And I don't think that's changed in terms of, yes, there's a lot more going on, but it's still so difficult because, you know, I'm already seeing this, you know, it's kind of the metastatic. People are kind of like, well, get ready because it's coming. I think to the positive, there's a lot more. In 2009, again, there was nothing. Today, almost every major pharmaceutical company, the advocacy groups, the nonprofits, everyone has something. And I think that's great. I think the challenging thing to me, though, is sort of explosion of metastatic awareness or attempts, I think that there's two things that propelled that. Number one, social media became more prevalent, and it was easier for patients to connect. And there was an easy platform to sort of connect with. And the other thing is with the rise of cd 46 6 inhibitors, massive amount of advertising came and which is great but there's also I can't help but feel frustrated we were still dying we still mattered and before these drugs came onto the market why was no one with us that's probably a little bit unfair because i can't think of one one at least one pharmaceutical and definitely others other like nonprofits and, and so forth that did have some programs but largely we were by ourselves it is also to be honest it's frustrating for me to see that You know okay we've gone from really no metastatic patients acknowledged and now you know on morning chat shows and so forth i noticed some of the major women's publications are featuring metastatic stories well they're featuring them because there's advertising which is great in terms of as somebody that comes from the print business and hopefully that will help people keep their jobs but on the other hand, it's frustrating to me because I don't know how many times I have sat down with somebody outside of the breast cancer world and they know nothing about the disease. That hasn't changed. I have to say it. That has not changed at all. You know, I sort of started compiling um, basically a cheat sheet for whoever. I'm like, oh, here I've made this bullet point of my of my case, and you know, we did the 13 facts about metastatic breast cancer for NBCN. That's where the 13 facts came from is because I knew that people didn't, you know, in fairness, some of these reporters, you know, today they're covering metastatic breast cancer. Tomorrow they have to cover the school board meeting. That's a lot of ground to cover, but it's a huge challenge in terms of awareness. And it's also another point of frustration would be, you know, it's great that we see more stories, but it's really hard to show the whole story. Like a case in point would be um, when you see some of these cd 46 inhibitor commercials on television. Well, it's very soft focus. And then, you know, on the one point that's good because nobody wants to learn from television. Oh, I guess what mom has, that's really not going away, is it? That is not where you want to pick up that information, but it, implies that you know it's all good there well what happens when they progress on that you know you know yeah they have another option but you know strangely i i don't see people like me in the commercial like
0: i know that you recently stepped down after an amazing Tenure as the awareness task force chair uh, for the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, and you—you you were very big part of the help keep me in the picture uh, initiative. And now it's evolved to a new initiative, which is your um, brainchild, and it's called Here All Year, which addresses exactly what you were just saying. It's that you're going into the infusion center every week. Your treatment will always be on your calendar, it's never gonna end. The only thing that's changing is when we progress and when we move to the next line of treatment, but we're still going back to the to the cancer center. And that's different than our early stage breast cancer compadres and we take nothing mm-hmm. away from them. So I'm wondering if you wanna talk a little bit about the initial idea of help keep me in the picture and then why was it important at that time? And then how is the here all year initiative How is it going to be a little bit different?
1: Well, it's been a couple of years in terms of the help uh, keeping the picture, it was a, a group effort, and most of the effort came from uh, an ad agency, which, pro- which provided its services pro bono. The original concept of that was to um, basically, you know, call attention to the realities of metastatic breast cancer, and you shared some of the facts, uh, which were in like social media friendly tiles. It would be sort of a support of keeping the patients in the picture. So there was a number of different components. There was some videos, some postcards, and some other things. But by far the most popular component uh, was the fact tiles. And I think that and these tiles were the things that Pretty much just straightforward facts about metastatic breast cancer. Um, like with metastatic breast cancer, seventy uh, percent of the time, I believe um, I should study these more closely. Um, even bone mes- bone metastases are the most um, prevalent chronic. area of metastases. Right. Seventy percent. Right. Right. We talked about some basic things that people should know about the disease. And I think that people freely shared them and continued to do so because they were straightforward. I think that they, I would say they were fairly neutral. They weren't really in your face. They were just like, look, this is the fact of it.
0: Um, And it was also credible. It was coming from a credible source. And backed up by sources. uh, Right. right? Not just that the Alliance subcommittee was saying, this is the fact. It was, it was based in, in sourced research yeah
1: right so i think that we thought you know looking at well what was the most popular piece um and also knowing that even since the time that that campaign was done many other you know great efforts out there so we didn't want to try and be in competition with them i mean so we thought well if we sort of build on this popular elements the fact and we can continue to um educate people about metastatic breast cancer and i think that's where the thought of here all year or hey came in is okay what can we tell people beyond what we've told them before you know and i know we didn't really have a clinical trial piece um i know brain mets is another area that they also wanted to kind of target in this this next go-around
0: I think you're right that the help keep me in the picture initiative and those social media tiles became the cornerstone for a lot of the organizations that are alliance members, the metastatic breast cancer alliance members. And those statistics are still being floated out there and used as as a way to create awareness around metastatic breast cancer. And so here all year is going to update those facts where we need to with the source documents, right? And then have them really every month out there in social media for our Alliance members to utilize, to help educate the public. And hopefully it'll move the needle further. Most Americans really just do not understand what metastatic breast cancer is. Like 61%, I think, just really know little about metastatic breast cancer. And I think uh, all of us living with NBC, we anecdotally know that's true because it is going to be... It is going to be always a conversation, especially when you're at different aspects of your treatment and the lack of understanding uh, around the trajectory of the disease, certainly. Uh, So thank you for that. It's a really great initiative and we'll be seeing more of it in October from the Alliance. So that'll be great. And I know that the right track tool is also factors a little bit into your advocacy because it's, you've always wanted to have in your writing and your, in in the other organizations that you've worked with, like LBBC and and others, you've you've been really looking at a better orientation for those early mm-hmm. weeks and months of diagnosis, because we're all deer in the headlights when we get this diagnosis. Even those of us who've had early stage and this is a recurrence, it's still mm-hmm. a shock and. And that's because of all the reasons we've already addressed and talked about. But then there's like the roadmap need, like you need to understand, well, what's what's coming at me and what's next? It's to get through the initial shock and then it's to help people get to that place where they can be advocates for themselves. So that right track initiative is something that I know you were involved in. And and do you feel like it, it is addressing all the things that you are looking for as an advocate?
1: Well, you know, there's always room for improvement. I think it's a great start. I think There's a handout, and I think it's available also as a PDF online, something that the Alliance developed, and it was 10 questions to consider about if you're looking for a clinical trial. I think in general that precision medicine is really something that is uh, becoming more important. I think that's, you know, one of the messages of The Right Track is, is built around precision medicine. And I think precision medicine, it is the future. I don't think uh, we're quite there yet, but I think it's so important if you can take advantage of, of it. I guess I'm specifically thinking of genomic testing, which is something that for, especially for a newly diagnosed person, is certainly something I would ask about. The promise of genomic testing is that you will identify a mutation that you have, that your tumor has, that could be matched to a specific drug. It's early days for that. There isn't Quite often, people will have this testing, and you know and they say, "Oh, there's no
0: no actionable actionable mutations." Yeah. Oh, I know those words really well because that's my situation. Yeah. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right yeah. that yeah. it's important to, and also to understand. And this is for our listeners, really, the difference between genetic testing, which a lot of the general population is hearing about or have heard about, and the yeah. BRCA test, and that's part of the genetic testing. It's what you're born with, and then the genomic yeah. testing requires a biopsy which most i would say all people who have been diagnosed with the mbc would would have a biopsy of their primary tumor to determine the the subtype of their cancer and their subsequent treatment but then the genomic testing is really so critical because it runs this panel of potential mm-hmm. actionable mutations that precision medicine can target and yes yeah, mm-hmm. certainly so many people do not understand what that difference is and why it would be an important question to ask. So that's a really, that's a biggie and that's a really important uh, point to weigh You read. know,
1: something else that I wish was better understood is um, kind of the flow chart of treatment. If you are newly diagnosed, it's kind of hard to know where you are. And if you get the NCCN guidelines, um, it's a great overview of the disease but there's also a table of your potential treatments. And so there's a, an overview of your potential treatments, but there's also an explanation of what those treatments are and how, how, what sequence they might follow. I think that's very hard to understand. I mean, it's also true that metastatic breast cancer obviously is not just one disease. So the guidelines can give you a great overview still may not necessarily apply directly to you, but it is better than what I got, which was uh, the American, I got a, the breast surgeon gave me a photocopy of the American Cancer Society brochure. And first of all, coming from the printing industry, I was offended because, you know, could she not, she's taking money out of a printer's pocket with her crummy photocopy. But it was so thick it didn't even fold well it was like literally being handled handed like a ream of papers and then folded over but more to the point i kept reading in this brochure and i was so confused because most of it was for people with early stage disease and at the very end there was like two pages and it was like uh, like chinese menus used to be like pick one from column a pick two from column b and then you know <laughs> with two you get egg roll But it was, I just didn't get it. And, you know, I'm a college-educated woman, and I could not imagine, how could you make sense of this? And the NCCN guidelines, there's a patient version. It's patient-friendly. And that is something that I would definitely check out. You talked about the Alliance. So many of the Alliance partners have wonderful programs. You know, we're talking with Cher today. Cher is awesome. And you could find out more about their programs on the Alliance website. But some of those things were definitely in existence when I was diagnosed, but it took me a while to find them. When I look back, because, you know, it's been 12 years since I was diagnosed. And when I was diagnosed, we didn't have some of the drugs that we have today. I mean, there's, um, we talked about cd 46 inhibitors. That's huge. And there was uh, additional uh, bisphosphonate that's available now. And I can think of at least three other estrogen receptor positive drugs. There's been at least one uh, HER2 positive drug. Things could be better in the TNBC space, but there are uh, some additional drugs that have come on, especially recently. Some exciting things are happening. So I think that was kind of the hope as a metastatic breast cancer patient is you're just kind of hoping like, well, maybe if I can stall around long enough, something better will come along. And it kind of happened. It was My timing wasn't, it didn't quite work out, but I mean, that's, you know, that still holds true today. So I think it's important to keep up with, you know, what's happening out there.
0: Right. Well, I, I appreciate <coughs> you highlighting that the Alliance is a great, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance is a great place to go and find different organizations and things that might be a fit for you as an individual. So that's great. Mm-hmm. And, and And you're right. There's Certainly in the 12 years of you living with NBC, there's been a lot of changes, but we all know where, where it's going and there's a lot of work to be done. So, and, that, and, and that's a great segue to my next question for you, which is the whole issue around the National Cancer Institute's surveillance epidemiology and end results program, also known as SEER. And as college educated people, right, it's like you have to know what you're looking at. To be able to do something with it <laughs> so this is like yeah. 101 it's like the basics and we're still trying to get this figured out so i know that this has been something that you've been very active with and so i'd love to hear um just a little bit of the background from sure. your perspective and and why it's a problem
1: sure well advocate musa mayor you know i've met her early on. And I said, you know, I don't know how much time I have, what's the one thing I could do to make a difference. And she said, um, if you know, to get uh, people counted, and she did wonderful work in that. I think most everything that I have ever said about it, I have plagiarized from USA because she put it so well. And the issue here is that you know, earlier I mentioned that there's an estimated 155,000 people living with metastatic breast cancer. And that is an estimate only because we don't actually count these people until they die. And the issue here is most people come to this disease having had early stage breast cancer. The way that SEER, our cancer registry, counts people is um, if you had early stage disease, it does not track metastatic recurrence. So until you die, you are still on the rolls as um, having survived breast cancer. You know, you are not counted as metastatic until you die. And hopefully that won't be for a really long time, but you're still messing up the count. For someone such as myself, I am counted because it does count de novo cancer. Uh, But again, people like me are only about 10% of the estimated 155,000 people living with metastatic breast cancer. Early on, I asked um, via social media, I asked SEER, what would it take to change this? And essentially, the answer that I got back was that it wouldn't change uh, because it's too expensive to change the cancer registry. I think the Alliance has done some important work here. They have, uh, you know, uh, been part of a a project to, you know, I was an English major, so I won't get this exactly right, but a project to take, let's say, a reliable (laughs) registry um, and sort of estimate from there, but it's still an estimate. You know, it's a step in the right direction, but there's still, it's still extremely difficult. Um, And I think if you if you were to say, well, why does that matter? You know, I had a consultant friend who used to always say, you know, you you can't manage what you don't measure. And so, you know, how do you know? And so used to say, you know, if we don't count people. It's like they're invisible. And when people are invisible, we don't provide for them.
0: And so... Right. It's like the census debate right now, not even a debate. It's like, this is what why the census is so important. It's really the basics. I wanted to just point out, and I think it's really important that you mentioned that the Alliance is trying and finding different ways to get to a a better estimated number. It looks like in 2020, we can say an estimated number of 168,000. So it's a little bit higher than what we did before uh, a couple of years ago, estimating Mm -hmm. about Mm 155,000. But what is still true is that it's incredibly rare when you think about the numbers overall for people like you and I who are de novo metastatic breast cancer patients or people diagnosed metastatic from the beginning. And that's still around, you know, approximately up to 10% of all metastatic mm-hmm. breast cancer patients. So that means there's like 90% of us who are not really fully c- calculated out there. So scientists, members of Congress, people who have the power to really work on this disease um, don't have the real full scope. So, yes. Another aspect that is of concern that follows that follows on from this issue of not not metastatic breast cancer patients not being counted properly you know this past september we've been focusing on this podcast on metastatic breast cancer research funding and the the alliance again is doing another analysis uh, to really get close to what that number is and we have some information from the big governmental funders that we can start with, but then we have all the nonprofit organizations that are also funding metastatic breast cancer research and, and certainly, um, doing more of that than when you were first diagnosed in two thousand and nine, nice. which is good. It's progress. Nice. Uh, but the twenty fourteen landscape analysis done by the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, which you know is a great place to start. Certainly, if you want to learn a little bit about metastatic breast cancer, it's it's a great it's a great place but it's being revised right now but back in 2014 as you well recall it was that about seven percent again it was an estimate Mm -hmm. of the 15 billion invested in breast cancer research both in the us and in the uk between the year 2000 and 2013 that was that was the the amount and so you couple that with we're not properly counted like how many metastatic breast cancer patients are here really in the united states you have that number quoted a lot by people trying to raise funds for metastatic breast cancer, because it becomes a bit of a rallying cry. It's like, did you know that many people really have, we think have metastatic breast cancer. And yet this, this small percentage is really trying to find a cure or even, even tolerable treatments so that we Mm -hmm. can at least, you know, have a longer runway and live a little longer. So my question to you is like, you have a very great, you have a great background. You're, you've really researched a lot of this. Why do you think that's true? Why do you think that NBC research has received this level of funding in the past? I think there's
1: two reasons. Predates um, the current administration. This goes back even to, I wanna say it was about 2008. There was cuts to the federal, there was cuts to the NCI budget and during that time those that budget never came back i mean yes it is back now but it was never it never reached the same level of funding and as a researcher you know you pretty much you pretty much have to do everything i mean you're responsible for the light bulbs in your lab you know you have to pay the salaries of the people who are working with you and you know when young people can't find jobs you know because there's no funding for them they're not gonna stick around research. So I think there's been previous cuts did not help, and that's a constant ongoing threat. I think that's also unfortunate because you want a researcher to be in the lab researching, but instead the researcher is out essentially dialing for dollars because they have to get themselves funded and unfortunately this results in the especially for younger researchers you only have a limited amount of time to make a name for yourself and if you do not pull it off well you're not going to advance in your career and so ultimately, this leads to, you know, there used to be, wasn't there the old saying of nobody ever got fired for buying a, a Buick or something like that? Um, you know, if you take the safe bet, that may be more rewarding in terms of your career. And goodness knows, there's no shortage of things to be researched in, you know, across all cancer, especially early breast cancer. But metastatic Research is also challenging because it takes longer. It takes longer to develop mouse models. It takes longer to you know, to see the results of what you're doing. And if you are a young person, you know, trying to start your career, it's probably not going to be necessarily encouraging to be in this field. I don't know also that I have a real concern, though, that if you are trying to write a grant in, let's say, metastatic metastatic research is the hot topic, Well, obviously, you're going to write your grant so that if, you know, anything that can be pulled in about metastases, you know, you're going to, that's going to be, you know, you're going to heavily pepper that in with your your grant. But is it really metastatic research? That's probably a subject for another podcast. But, you know, I think that the reality is research funding cuts that happened, I want to say it was almost 12, 15 years ago. I mean, we're still feeling those repercussions. And just the reality of the, you know, the pressure on someone to produce results as a researcher, you know, metastatic research is it's going to take a long time.
0: Yeah. And it continues to be challenging, even with the most promising treatments, right? There's so much to do, but if you were advising a metastatic breast cancer advocate listening to this podcast today, what would you tell them to prioritize over the next coming year? That is a good question.
1: You know, I still think that education still needs to be there. I still think that, you know, just because you see more uh, metastatic breast cancer um commercials or articles it's, it doesn't stop education that's ongoing and that remains a challenge i think particularly in given the situation that we're in today i think that paying for your treatment i think financial toxicity is certainly remains there so i think that's a you know, remains a huge issue i think disparities in healthcare are very real in this, you want to say this is the time. It's And I'm so encouraged by this. I'm so encouraged. I have to say that 12 years ago, yes, there was a couple organizations, but I, I see these wonderful advocates today. And I'm like, God bless you. That is just so you can see that change. You can sense that change. And that is very exciting. So anything, any support that could be given there. I don't know beyond that in terms of try not to try to avoid information overload, because I think that's a real hazard as we all cannot attend conferences in person. I think there's a Zoom overload. Present company accepted.
0: Um, (laughs) Thank um, you. But yes, I totally agree with the Zoom overload, yes. So I think that I want to say, you
1: know, like in Star Wars, you know, choose wisely because, you know, you can't. You can't do it all. So pick the one area that you can have the greatest impact and go with it, And you know.
0: Yeah, no, that's great advice. Great advice. So how has your approach to your cancer evolved in terms of treatment fatigue, approach to progression, how you choose to spend your time? Mm. Um well,
1: I mean, I was have been very fortunate because this is my first IV chemo and so, you know, the treatments that I had previously were all oral based and did not really take up too much of my time in terms of I had a monthly oncology appointment. That was about it. I think the one thing that I guess the one thing that has changed was early on I would just kind of take whatever I was told by my oncologist as the be-all, end-all. And I definitely have faith in the people that were taking care of me, but I guess I have learned that if there's something, you know, I guess I should give an example that would be more helpful. Prior to starting on Zolota, my oncologist at the time said that she recommended that I start IV chemo. And, you know, I was really upset because I didn't want to. And I started to cry and she (laughs) said, well, you knew this day was coming. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, I was just at, uh, at a very low point. And I went to the chemo class that they offered and, and I thought, I don't know, you know, I just... So then I thought, well, you know, I just don't know what to do. And then I remembered do things. Um, you know, I know uh, we talked about Shirley Mertz and Shirley has talked about the value of getting a second opinion. And, uh, also I had a friend that in order to get a certain treatment, um, she lived in North Carolina, but she actually moved <laughs> to Boston because that's where the trial that she wanted was available. And I thought of her and her husband, I'm like, they actually moved to Boston. And you know, I'm like, all I need to do is get a second opinion. And I happen to be there was a conference happening in Boston. So I'm like, you know, we're going to the cancer center for the conference. I am going to get a second opinion. And it was at Dana-Farber. In fact, I could have gotten the second opinion at home. I don't want to say that we you know there's great places you could seek a second opinion in Chicago, but I was going to Boston. So I thought I'll go. So I did. And the oncologist I saw at Dana-Farber said it would be reasonable to do Zalota first. He said there was no argument to go to IV chemo first. And and it was such a relief in terms of, you know, I felt like, you know, Scrooge on Christmas morning, like I hadn't missed it. And like, yeah, you know, so, um, so I went home and this was, it was in October. And so I thought, well, I'll start on Zalota and just to finish out the year with that oncologist. And then I'm like, I am moving to a different oncologist. I did. I, I started going to um, an academic cancer center downtown. And that was just huge in terms of um, because, you know, I knew, you know, as I sit here, you know, on that IV chemo, I knew it was coming, but that was three and a half awesome years. And, you know, it's a, you know people might have different preferences, like maybe they would hold that and, you know, whatever, but it made such a difference to me because. I could see, like, you know, things kind of being confined, and and I thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to ask someone else, and that was just huge in terms of, you know, it was like the Wizard of Oz. The power was with me all along. I should have clicked my heels. Oh, <laughs> but, um,
0: I love it. Uh, That's great. That's great. It's great advice, right? It's great universal and, great advice. That's super- You
1: know, I don't know, like, the other thing I was told, same old oncologist, when I had the liver metastases, I had requested a biopsy. Um, she said, okay, because I just wanted to, I, I don't, you know, I don't know if to know what testing was possible then. And probably anyhow, she says, fine, I arrived the day of the biopsy, and I'm told that my liver nets are inaccessible, and I'm going to have a bone biopsy. Hmm. And I had actually come I'd come back from the second opinion and the doc said, well, you know, you could get a biopsy, but it's not critical, you know. Um so and you know, so for a bump biopsy, and like I know that's gonna deliver just such a limited sample. I literally I refused to sign the consent form. I'm like, no thank you. I'm leaving now. Um, whereas I probably would have, you know, a few years previous, I would have been like, okay, the doctor said I should, you know, I have to, I want to clarify one thing. I'm not saying like, if the doctor tells you to do something, oh no, don't do it. But you know, if there is a justification from a respected, uh, second opinion, uh, you know, another oncologist, you know, there is justification for that. And I was glad I didn't do that biopsy. I, when I had subsequent uh, liver progression I was able to have a regular liver biopsy and that was fine but at one time like I said I would have just said okay yes I'll do that but yeah you know after <laughs> at this point um, I will think I will make my own decision I will not I will take uh, like a judge you know I will take your opinion into consideration <laughs> and I'll be back with my ruling.
0: I like that you're the, and we've also heard another podcast that you're the CEO of your body and you're the one in charge. So, or you're the judge and you're going to make your own ruling. I love that. I am the
1: judge, (laughs) the jury, the bailiff.
0: (laughs) That's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Perfect. Given these crazy times that we're living in on top of our metastatic breast cancer Diagnosis or life with metastatic breast cancer. Mental health is really important and it's really important to keep it front of mind and to take care of it as well as your physical well being. Mm. So, what do you do to take care of your mental health?
1: Well, that's too far gone. No, I was kidding. Um, <laughs> I'd say lot,
0: huh? humor, humor, you're always so yeah. funny.
1: So. That's true. <laughs> First of all, I, although I joked, many years ago, I was treated for clinical depression. If I felt that that was something that I needed to talk to someone about, I would certainly do that. At My prior oncologist, they did have a counselor who specialized in talking to cancer patients and i did meet with her you know whenever i had an issue so i would say if i needed help i would certainly seek it out in terms of day to day things i'm always looking for some sort of escape and which is hard because we obviously can't go anywhere but like somebody shared that window swap i think it's like windowswap.com and it's just people send in like videos of their window view and so you know so I look at it and first before I look at the caption I'm like I wonder where that is it looks I see those mountains maybe it's South America so that's very interesting strangely every once in a while I'll get into areas that I will have absolutely in real life I will do absolutely nothing with this knowledge for some reason I really got interested in rock climbing so I started reading this rock climbing site and it's interesting in other ways because Again, I will I will not be in Yosemite climbing there, but it's it's just fascinating to read about it. So, you know, I always, I don't know, I just get interested in like different areas. And I have tried a little bit or I haven't made too much progress. I have a whole, you know, batch of like family pictures and like early on in this, I'm like, ah, you know, I think like many people, I was all like gung-ho, like I'm gonna scan these pictures. And I did scan some, but... We're a large family and our our archives are expansive so it's like trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. A little progress was made but I think there's also some comfort in that because I think that as long as you have that you're like well I can't go anywhere I haven't finished my project you know. That's true. true. And then you unpick it it and whatever you know.
0: Right right. Oh my gosh. Well, it's been a delight. And I so appreciate your time today, Catherine. And feel well on your week off. Okay, thanks. I'm Jersey, host of the
1: Trailblazer of the Month of Our NBC Life. This October, we want to remember those who have died from metastatic breast cancer this past year. In our Just Gotta Share episode, at the end of the month, we are creating space to remember. Please send us names of the people you would like remembered. You can email us their names or you can send us a short voice recording. Remembrance to Our NBC Life at ShareCancersupport.org.
0: This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly collaborative and expanding team of Jersey Baker, Pam Dederer natalia green victoria goldberg kirby lewis sheila McGlone, Shante randall and ann woodward our executive producer is christine benjamin senior director of patient services and education at share cancer support interning with us are angelica alberstadt elena golub and amy tedeschi to jake amarelli for his social media consulting and you can find more episodes of Our NBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and look for a new episode every Monday. And submit your Just Gotta Share moments. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.